and we hope you'll really like It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Saturday to you. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour. Back from a road trip. And oh, the the places we went and uh, the people we met was an extraordinary experience. And now we're back working with our buddy, our producer, Nathan Miller. Nathan, how are you doing today? Good morning, Suzanne and Gary, and welcome back to you. And did you just say police? Did you get pulled over one or two times when you were on that road trip? Come on now, be honest. Because Never <laughs> once. Never once, although I must tell you, I don't know that any of you will actually be in this situation. I saw more cop cars. Back me up on this, Suzanne. Yes. Going through the state of Georgia. Yes. There's no shortage of police. They, they did not defund the police in Georgia. I know that for were, sure. They were looking for income. And so we saw police cars every few miles on the interstate in Georgia looking for speeders. Any we chance it was I-95? Yes. Actually, it was because we were just talking about that on a show earlier on Labor Day weekend. It's like one of the most deadly stretches of road. Oh, so maybe that's why you're seeing so many police cars. You know, they're watching out and keeping people safe. Police were very definitely there. We went to New York. I'm just going to give this a few seconds. We we went through uh, New Jersey to get to to Kearney, New Jersey there. And that's across the river from New York City. I'll tell you this, when you look at the Manhattan skyline, you recognize that you can only have that experience for the first time exactly once. The first time is always the first time after that. It's just, I mean, never the same. Oh, Gary never got tired of looking at it. He would walk outside the front door of where we were staying and just stand in the street and look at it until we pulled him off the street because um, it was a it was a wonderful view and we we went to so many 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 places we can't possibly take up this hour talking about where we went but it was a wonderful road trip the top of which was new york city Um, but we also went to uh, gettysburg and colonial williamsburg we were on the shenandoah byline drive and Congaree National Park. We did a combination of natural things and city things and historic things. And it was truly, truly, truly a wonderful trip. And and we really want to express a lot of gratitude to Matt Shea for babysitting Manson Mitchell on Saturdays with you, Nathan. And he did the show. Oh, we had such a great time. You know, we had excellent. a guest from uh, talking about really good topics, and he did an excellent job, did no problem filling up all the hours, and it was a great pleasure oh, working great. with him, as always when he's a guest on when you host the show. Yes. Yes. I'm, well, I'm sorry that we didn't catch all of them. We, we heard the last one. We which, did. We heard the last we, one. And that reminds yeah. me, Nathan, uh, during our break at the bottom of the hour, if you could look up anything regarding quantum physics, just go ahead and tell us. <laughs> oh, you caught that part, didn't you? <laughs> Good old Kevin. How about 42? It was. It was wonderful. And we want to really thank Matt Shea from the bottom of our hearts for doing a great job while we were out of town and allowing us to have a nice vacation and still have a first run show going on. We were walking from Times Square to Broadway and back on a Friday night. 
everybody should have that experience at least once. And I'm and really excited. Off- and as for police officers, they were definitely there. They were getting their picture taken. <laughs> All the tourists were standing by the cops. Hey, can we take your picture? It was oh. a lot of fun. A great time. And I'm really excited to hear about it. I've been to the state, New York, but never actually the city. So looking forward to it. We didn't drive. Our hosts drove us to the city, which appears to be mostly tourists because they they charge you a, an arm and a leg to go through the tunnels and pay the tolls like $16, $18 to take a tunnel. Real crazy, crazy stuff. And it's all tourists in the city. So interesting. People who live there don't drive. I can imagine it's a tourist trap. Yeah, very much so. We have Harriet. Harriet Baskus with us today. I don't know what happened time. to my voice. I, I, I got to do the Columbo thing the rest of the show now. I don't mean to bother you, but yes. when it, did you say that the gun was in your hand when it was fired? Yes, Harriet Baskus, who has about 111 places, which would hardly exhaust her knowledge of the Emerald City and environs, but she wrote a book about places you must not miss. We have talked to Harriet before, and she is a fascinating person who does very interesting things. The book I'm holding in my hand is 111 Places in Seattle That You Must Not Miss. And let me give a little bio, and then we're going to talk more about the book. Harriet Baskus is an author and journalist who has produced radio documentaries on everything from early cowgirls to offbeat museums and written eight books about unusual attractions, hidden museum treasures, and airports around the world. She served as the general manager of three community radio stations in the Pacific Northwest, and now reports on travel and the arts for a variety of national outlets, and for her blog, stuckattheairport.com. Welcome for the third time to Manson Mitchell, Harriet Baskus. Thank you so much. Excited to be here, Final, finally, for this book. We, we've we talked about this. You're being in Seattle and knowing so much, and, and you said out of those 111, pick a few that you want to talk about. So I was just thumbing through the book, and one of the very first places that I saw in thumbing through your book was number six, The Ballard Locks. And the reason that that caught my attention is well before I ever moved to Seattle in 2001, I was visiting my sister during the 80s and the 90s. And the very first place she took me to was the Ballard Locks and the Fish Ladder to show me about the fishing industry in the Seattle area. So tell us a little bit more about what people can expect when they go to Ballard Locks. Well, I'm so glad you chose that one because that's the neighborhood that I live in. And so oh. I walk I walk there every day. And so I get to see it change through the seasons. So what it is, is the locks um, built by the um, Army Corps of Engineer in 1917. And it's to connect like Lake Washington and Lake Union are lakes with Puget Sound so that ships can go through from lake stuff. And there's shipyards over here um, to Puget Sound. So yesterday we saw big cargo containers going through, small cruise ships go through, um, and even people in kayaks go through. So um, it's like two two big bathtubs, really, where they fill them up and adjust the water level for ships to go through. So that's really fun because it's different every day. And then to let the salmon come through, they've got the 
fish ladders and they've got windows where you could go down and see the fish. And right now is a perfect time because there's lots of salmon in there. So you see them jumping in the water and you see them going through the locks. But the bonus thing is there's also seven acres of garden there, which is was built also in the very early 1900s. And so you've got very mature and some very rare um, flowers and trees. So we love walking through there. I love that. And who knew I was going to be in your neighborhood all those years ago? (laughs) That was, uh, that was definitely a fun thing. 111 places. Ballard Locks is just one of them and a a great place for us to start. But also in looking through the book, something caught my eye even before then, even though I wanted to start at Ballard Locks. And I couldn't believe this. When I was a little kid, I used to watch the Jetsons. I love the Jetsons. And I knew without any doubt at all that before the end of my lifetime, we were all going to be flying cars. And I saw in 111 places an actual flying car. Please tell us about the aero car. <laughs> yes, I love the, the aero car is one of my favorite things. Before I moved to the Pacific Northwest, I came to a conference and in the airport a long time ago, this aero car used to be a display in the airport. And I thought that was perfect. And I too thought that the next time I came, I would fly my car from New York to Seattle. Um, but in the late 1950s, this guy, Moulton Taylor, I love that name. He lived down in Longview and he decided that he wanted to have a flying car like you, like the rest of us. And um, he actually um, created one. And he, it was like a, like a, if you see it, it's like a little roadster size car. And he put wings on it that you could attach or detach and care and pull behind the car. So the idea was that if you got stuck in traffic, you would just put the wings on the car and fly away, which we would all love to do in the traffic jam, fly away. And he actually got it. Um, uh, it was certified by the precursor to the Federal Aviation Administration. And he tried to get enough money to put it in production. And he made like seven prototypes of it. One of them is in the Museum of Flight here in Seattle, um, and it never got off the ground. It never happened. Um, But over the years, I've met people who saw it flying. That's a real treat for me. These people said, yeah, I saw them filling it up at the gas station and then flying it somewhere. So you can go to the Museum of Flight, which has hundreds of giant airplanes, and then this little aero car tucked under the wing of one of the giant planes. So I love it. And one of the things that caught my attention about it is that this car actually did fly. It and, did. And one of and this I know this really shows my age, but as a baby boomer, I used to watch the Bob Cummings show. Yes. I guess I am that old. And and I loved Bob Cummings. And under the arrow car, it says he actually flew it. Right. He was one of the people who owned one. There was a TV station in Portland that used one to for traffic. Um, reports. And then Bob Cummings, who had a TV show called The Bob Cummings Show. And then I think there was another one called More Bob Cummings or something like that. And, um, <laughs> and then there was a third one again with the Bob yes. Cummings. That's on the uh, Jewish channel. Yes. <laughs> and then, um, but it actually, you can go on um, the internet and see a little clip of him at the beginning. It's the clip of the beginning of the show, him flying the aero car. 
And the story is, I don't know if it's true, but he was kind of like a heartthrob um, playboy on the show. And he would fly his dates around and supposedly Marilyn Monroe got to fly in the aero car. So um, yeah, it was real. I think we should all have one. Oh, I can't wait for mine. And, and, you know, I'm really sorry that that never took off (laughs) (laughs) because I, I dreamt as a child that, you know, I was going to be flying around just like the Jetsons one day and to see that it was actually in production. Yeah. There's people who say, you know, the, um, the big car companies um, didn't let it happen, but now there's people working on that. I think that in my lifetime, um, there should be a flying car that at least I'll get to see, maybe not fly in, but see. I've read about flying vehicles in Europe, and I don't have it in front of me, but they're using it now for emergency vehicles, like ambulances uh, are flying ambulances in Europe so that they can fly to the hospital, um, You know, not unlike how we have helicopters here but they have ambulances that actually fly in Europe. So somewhere it is really taking off, even if it isn't here. And I don't know what you would do with everything that we have going on to make that kind of a cultural shift to, to, you know, flying. We we just have the technology now. So you don't hit the car in front of you. (laughs) What would we do if we were all flying? (laughs) I would love to, I would love a new car that has that. Yeah. Yeah, I would too. And uh, kind of attached to that is the first gas station, number 32 in your book. And, and I said to myself, well, that just can't be the first gas station can't be in Seattle. That's just crazy. Well, there's a lot of places that claim they're the place that had the first gas station. And it could be that there's a, it's how you define it. it could be the first gas station gas pump could be the first service station, the first, you know, different nuances, but there is a, there's a concrete um, plaque or or a bronze plaque on a concrete um, stanchion, I guess, that says, claims that Seattle had the very first um, service station in 1907. So the the gas pump was um, invented, technically patented in 1905, 1907. And then soon after, Seattle claims that it was had the very first service station. Now, when I, again, when I first moved here, there was a man who had, I, I really miss him, the Petroliana Museum. And it was just filled with gas station related stuff like the, the, mm. um, the flying, the flying horse, Sunoco and all that stuff. And he also claimed that this was the first, the home of the first day, first service station. So I kind of believe it just because he was really an expert in that field. But it's very funny to me that this is um, the plaque is down by the the monument, I guess you would call it, is down by the shipping yards now, a little south of downtown Seattle. And it's very hard to get to by car. There's no place to pull over. So the best way to get to see it is by a bicycle. There's a very good bike lane there. So, but I I, I think, uh, yes, please finish your thought. I just, I I believe it because I think, um, I, I think that the West especially the West was very much into adopting new things and pioneering ideas. So I believe it. When it comes to cars, do you know, and this is just coming in from the side, Harriet. So no is a perfectly acceptable response. (laughs) Okay. Because that's what you get from me. 
and that is does anybody talk about the uh, the car that was featured in the Elvis movie it happened at the World's Fair it seems like there was a very futuristic car there and of course the space age was the theme and the space needle there which became prominent in that film but I remember there was a, an exhibit where they had this car that I don't know if it flew or not probably not but probably. it looked like it could they're just this forward thinking aspect of it yeah. seems quintessentially Seattle to me Yes. Now that you say that, I think there was, I don't know if it was the Elvis's car, but I think there was a futuristic car on display at the Seattle World's Fair. And um, we can we can look that up. But um, yeah. And, you know, we do have in Tacoma the LeMay Car Museum. So somebody there might know more about it. But I bet the car that Elvis drove in that movie, it happened at the World's Fair, is in somebody's collection somewhere because there's so many car collections around the world. Yes. But I don't think it's down at um, Tacoma at the Lumay Museum. But I'll check on to, that. Good question. I need to find, well, we'll say, you know, and I couldn't answer it. And I didn't figure that you could, but it allowed us to kill a little time talking about it. <laughs> By the way, let me just say that there, when you speak of Tacoma, see, Seattle, Tacoma, represents a progressive attitude, a willingness to experiment, a willingness to coalesce around good ideas and to make improvements wherever possible. There's an industriousness to the Seattle-Tacoma area. And for that, you need people. You need smart people. You need people with experience, with skill sets. Why am I saying all this now? Because Suzanne and I took a trip. We went into New York three times with our wonderful hosts, Carl and Sue Petrie. Carl's been on our show several times. And when we went to Ellis Island, we walked through and they had a photographic exhibit, big blown up photos of all kinds of things, you know, the some of the earliest immigrants and what they faced as they came to this golden land, as one uh, immigrant referred to it, this golden land. And there was a blown up, poster. It was an, an ad poster from Tacoma encouraging people to attend the anti-Chinese meeting that they had. They thought they were going to be overrun by the Chinese element in their midst all of a sudden. They didn't like it and they wanted to rally the populace against Chinese immigration to the Tacoma area. And I thought, oh my goodness, it's taken a lot of years there, but Today, you look at Seattle and Tacoma, it's quite a different picture. Absolutely. And when you talk about industriousness, um, there, it, one of the places in the book is the Museum of History and Industry, Mohai. And there's so, there were so many things to choose from to feature in the chapter, but I ended up choosing their, what they call a patent tree. And it's a it's a man-made tree. It's not like a real tree, but it's in the shape of a tree and hanging off of it are all the patents that are, that come from Seattle and this region. And there's so many of them dating back to the early 1900s, late 1800s even to show um, how industrious and how uh, forward thinking people were who came here in those very early days. And um, you can be sure that a lot of them were from a lot of different cultures. We're going to talk about other cultures after the break, but you brought up something which now leads me to want to talk about, okay, I, I just lost the number on it. Um, the greenest office building. When you are saying that Seattle has, has been at the forefront, you know, we think of the 
biggies over there, the Microsoft, the Amazon, the Boeing, you know, the really big ones. But then there's, when we're talking about innovation, there's also the idea of the greenest office building. That was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So why don't you take the rest of this time to just tell, tell us what you can find at the greenest office building. Okay, so that's up on Capitol Hill, and it's the home of the Bullet Foundation. And the head of that foundation is Dennis Hayes, who was the person who invented or started um, Earth Day back in 1970. So a lot of history, a lot of dedication to environmental progression and stuff. So when they wanted to have a headquarters, they decided they wanted to be a demonstration building of everything all the technology that you could use to make it green and environmental and um, light on the earth. And so they did that. They built this building. They spent probably more than other buildings, but the building um, makes its own heat, collects its own, all the water for um, off the roof, what has a garden that it makes with that. And, um, and even they started with composting toilets for an entire office building but um, that's the one thing that didn't work out. They've just switched over to um, a different kind of toilet system. Very green though. There's no parking lot there. That's right. There's no parking lot and there's the elevators are kind of hidden. So the idea is that they want people to um, walk up the stairs and they make the stairs the first, a very welcoming place. And um, the elevator, you know, sometimes you need an elevator and some people need an elevator, but they encourage that. It's a very friendly, welcoming um, a place that encourages people to talk and meet and get exercise. So it's super green. Um, I love that there's they use geothermal heat and they have a weather station on the roof that tells the slats on the windows when to open and close to take advantage of the sun or cool the building. Um, and it's still it was like, um, it's, you know, it's not brand new anymore, but it's still very green and very um, self-sufficient. You could take tours of it. And they hid the elevators? Yes, they hid them so that, you know, you walk into an office building and really we're trained to go to the elevator. Even in like the five-story condo building that I'm at, everyone goes to the elevators. Those are like the first thing. And you, and the, you have to really think about using stairs. In that building, you have to really work to go find the elevator. Well, as a matter of, they're so environmentally sensitive that you can't find your own office. <laughs> you have very little impact. Your carbon footprint is about zero. Where the hell's my office? <laughs> it's down there next to the elevator. I, I worked for a company for over 10 years that grew quite a bit. And I think when I started, there might've been maybe 300 people. And when I left, there were about 600 people. And so it, it doubled in size, but it was the same building that they kept swooshing more and more people into unless they were outside sales. And the it got to the point where you couldn't find a place to park your car because the parking lot was not designed to have that many hundreds of cars. And I can remember the president of the company was on the phone one time with his executive staff. And he said, we never promised them a parking space. We promised them a desk and a chair, but we, we're not promising anybody a parking space. So they're going to have to figure it out. <laughs> I thought it was pretty wild. Well, 
it's fortunate that this building is in a part of the city that has great public transportation and people in that neighborhood probably walk to work. So um, it kind of fits in. And you think if you're going to rent a space in that building or take a job with a company there, you're going to be kind of on board with the green activities. So, And especially there in Seattle. I mean, it's just, it's like the air that you breathe, which is pretty clean air, by the way, and all those lovely blue skies. They're uh you know, it's a matter of where you live. Let me tell you that even though we have environmentally educated and sensitive people here in the Sarasota Bradenton area of Florida, the cultural coast, as we call it, the sun coast, there's there's not the same concern. There's not the same degree of creative caretaking when it comes to the environment. In Seattle, I doubt that anyone would have you beat. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yes. Nobody. Um, th- it's very green. I mean, we when we when I used to live in a house, if you didn't recycle correctly, the people who took your garbage could give you a ticket. <laughs> so oh very gosh. green. Yes, yes. We were always afraid of garbage day. We do it wrong. So D- does the building have a place for your bicycle? Yes. Where I. Yes, they have bicycle. The green building, absolutely. There's bicycle places, everything. And um, good luck and when finding you, it. Yes, <laughs> but also <laughs> when you talk about when you talk about the air, um, the the greenest building, the Bullet Foundation building, they also have intentionally planted um, the gardens around there to create, you know, a cool cool the air, put um, good things back into the air, and they use the rainwater that comes from the roof. That is we have a lot amazing. of rainwater. <laughs> you know, you yeah. said the building was not brand new and but very innovative. And so, you know, wouldn't you kind of hope that other people would copy that idea? They should, you know, market this is how you do it, because there is this resurgence in climate change and and environment. And what can what can I do? What can we do? And I think there's a real calling for having other green buildings like that. The other thing I, I would just be curious about is the cost of doing something like that. I, I would think that it would pay dividends to not have some of the, uh, like you're saying, the geothermal heats from the floor. There must be ways to handle the energy so that it the costs aren't even that much to have the building. Yes, I'm sure that it's um, paid itself back in terms of anything extra. Remember, they used everything that was like green, new systems. So maybe they were more expensive then, but over time, those yes. other people could use them because the price has come down. Um, mm-hmm. They've saved all this money and heat and cooling over the years. Um, and also there's lots of articles where people studied the systems in that building to make other buildings. And today you go into buildings that are um, gold or, or silver lead L E E D. You see that a lot on, um, I, I don't know if it's everywhere, but here in Seattle, almost every new building is lead lead certified. And so all of these things um, are being used in new buildings as we go forward. So people are, have learned from it. And some of those systems are now, I would think standard. Harriet Baskus is our honored guest of this hour. Now, I mentioned something that I was shocked to see when uh, Suzanne and I visited Ellis Island here in the past few weeks. 
and it was regarding some anti-Chinese sentiment in Tacoma. But now, oddly enough, I am glad that I did mention it, Harriet, because in your wonderful book titled 111 Places in Seattle That You Must Not Miss, we're going to discuss the vibrancy of Seattle, Tacoma, the environs in terms of diversity, the contributions each culture can make. And in the case of Asian culture, if you want to see some beautiful culture, artwork of various kinds, this industriousness to go with the creativity, there are at least a few. Yep. Out of 111, you you made a good representation there so that people can understand ethnically all the diverse populations and what they contribute to this mosaic called Seattle and environs. We'll take a break and we'll be back more with Harriet Baskus on the other side. Thanks for listening to us. We're Manson Mitchell on AM 1150. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days. And I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please, get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Dr. Bernard Beitman to talk about meaningful coincidences. What is their nature and how can we benefit from synchronicity and serendipity on purpose? On Saturday, Becky Walsh joins us from London for a free-range discussion about life from both sides of the pond. Bringing you fascinating talk since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Organic, free-range, and fresh daily. Alternative Talk, 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Harriet Baskus. We have really enjoyed our conversations with Harriet Baskus because she has written so many really interesting books. And this book in particular, 111 Places Seattle in Seattle That You Must Visit, is full of photographs. One page is words, the other page is photo facing the words. A really outstanding book that would be wonderful as a gift. 
Harriet, if people want to find out about the other books you've written or how to connect with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Uh, well, so I've got a blog called stuckattheairport.com, which is not just about airports, but it's about travel. But any of the books that are still in print um, are on Amazon or probably your local bookstore. We must promote um, and support our local bookstores. They can find them. So, um, But I just wanted to mention that this book, 111 Places in Seattle That You Must Not Miss, is part of an international series. There's a version of this for many, many other cities um, in Europe and in the United States. So I was just um, on a podcast with the guys from 111 places in Vancouver, you must not miss. Um, oh so, so there's one for Portland, there's one for uh, Houston, there, there's a couple for New York City, which I wish I knew you were going to New York City, I would have told you about those. Um, wow. So that's what's fun. So you mentioned the photos, that the format is the same. So they all have 111 places. And there's a chapter and then a, a beautiful photo for each one. And for this one, it was funny. I picked this up during the pandemic when I wasn't traveling and they matched me up with a photographer who I didn't know who lived in Olympia, which is not that close to Seattle. And I thought this is never going to work, but um, she turned out to be like wonderful. Sometimes I felt like she wasn't illustrating my chapters, but I was writing long captions for her beautiful photos. Um, so we <laughs> we worked together during the pandemic in the early days. We oh, would um, I would write a couple of chapters or talk to a couple of people, and then she would come up from Olympia, and we would drive around town in separate cars with our masks on and go to places that had agreed to open for us during the pandemic. And we, she would get the picture to go with what I was writing about or had written about the piece of the place that I had chosen to focus on. So it was a very interesting process. I'd never done it that way before. I don't know if anyone had ever done it that way before. Um, but we picked places, you know, of course, that we thought would make it through the pandemic. And most everyone has pandemic working and so many people went to zoom but that's not something that you could do by zoom you actually had to go to these places yeah i wanted to see them because you know i've lived in seattle for more than 30 years and the challenge for these books is they're not like standard guidebooks they're for people who have been here before who live here or who have been to the, the regular places um, it was right. to find places and stories about places that not everybody knew so I found a lot of places that I had never known about people gave me tips and I did bonus research um, and then I would call a place where I thought like the batter locks or um, a, a museum that I thought I knew and would find out bonus information so that was the really fun part for me. Well, thank you for sharing that. And do you have a website? Uh, stuck at the airport.com. Oh, that's right. You website. Yeah. I try Which to put everything there. also the name of one of your books. Yes. With, okay. um, that's from a long time ago, right before 9-11. I had a book out about a guide to airports. So okay. bad timing, it's, but interesting. Yeah. Was, mm. Okay. So uh, I wanted to take some time to celebrate ethnic diversity. And I'll open that phase by asking Asians, what are you going to do? So <laughs> we, have, we have the Wing Luke Museum. Here's a little story I could tell on myself. I wanted to see the Wing Luke Museum because I looked at a AAA guide to Seattle, to the Northwest, and then there was this big Seattle section. And I thought, that sounds very interesting. Do you know, I, I lived in Seattle for 21 years and never got there. 
it brings up there and uh, it's important to celebrate heritage. It's important to celebrate diversity. It's also important to go to the places you say you're going to visit because Suzanne and I have lived in Florida since July of 2011. And what I found, and I think this is true no matter where the heck you live, I can't even tell you the last time I went on a beach outing with Suzanne. And I live in Florida on the Gulf Coast. Life intervenes. We don't get to the things we say, oh, my goodness, we'll live so close to the beach. I mean, we could be there all the time. It reminds me of all the folks that would tell me, I love the idea of going to Seattle. I was inspired by the architectural wonder known as the Space Needle. Really, and when's the last time you were there? Oh, God, it must have been 20 years ago when my relatives came in from Omaha. There, They go to these places. When you live in a place as big as Seattle, to enjoy it means it's it's meant to be a verb, a doing that you go, and people will live someplace for decades and say, I never got to that place. And the Wing Luke Museum is one, the Kubota Gardens. There's another one. There is a rich Asian culture to be experienced and thoroughly enjoyed. And yet I kick myself when I think of all the opportunities I had with free time not to go and see such places when they were just up the road, so to speak. And so when you do come back to Seattle and we go together to the Wingwood Museum, um, what you'll see there is, um, and that's developed over the years, um, you will see the story of the Asian Pacific American experience in Seattle, which has um, uh, sad parts because people were very, uh, were not very nice to the Japanese Japanese people and the Japanese Americans who were living here. The whole thing of putting people in concentration camps really during um, World War II, not a good part of our history. But the, there's so much positive um, history from that um, community that's told in the Wing in the Wing Luke Museum. And um, there's also part of the museum goes through a hotel that served as um, a part of a place where Japanese um, immigrants lived and and um, but also one of the kind of the part that brings a lot of people there now is there's a there's always a Bruce Lee exhibit there. It mm. changes over time. Bruce Lee is a martial arts legend that um, that lived in who lived in Seattle. Um, and right now, I think they have his library on display. But there's um, there's things that we've learned from him and from his experience in the city. Um, and my favorite part of the Winglick Museum, though, is up on one of the landings, almost, it can almost miss it, is um, Bruce Lee when uh, there was a um, Green Hornet TV show um, in 1966. Bruce Lee played the Green Hornet sidekick, Kato. Kato, yeah. And that was just one, that TV show was on for one season only. And there's a man in town, Perry Lee, who I got to meet during the pandemic. He, um, and he had collected every single branded item that was made with Cato from from the Green Hornet. So that's on wow. he he brings over and changes it out sometimes but there's a long exhibit case that's filled with like lunch boxes and Halloween outfits just themed with Cato. 
So, um, so I love that. And it also reminds you to like, look closer at the stories that are in that museum. And there's, um, there's always, they're always changing it. And it's always, um, there's art in there. And I just, and I like it. And nearby is the Panama Hotel, which is another place where people lived um, during generations, um, fishermen and Japanese immigrants. Um, and there's in the basement of that tea house in the Panama Hotel, when the Japanese Americans and Japanese um, people were sent to um, to camps during World War II, people, the owner, original owner of that tea house, let people store their belongings in the basement, and not everybody came back to collect them, and they're still there. And in the back of that tea house, you can um, they've cut out a place in the wooden floor. And it's now like a plexiglass um, viewing window into the basement where you can still see the, um, the belongings and the trunks from people who unfortunately did not come back to get their, their belongings. And that's, the, that's an object lesson in tragedy, of yes. miscommunication, of misunderstanding. Yes. And the misunderstanding is on the part of those who did not welcome these foreigners, right? These intruders. There were immigrants who helped form the amazing American story. And pardon me for getting on my soapbox here, but one of the reasons why I want to go to these Asian cultural centers is to learn to appreciate them more deeply because their influence has been healthy, healthy for culture, healthy for the arts, particularly healthy for commerce. Hello. Seems to me they ought to be celebrated instead of being seen still today by too many people as the other those others. Yes. We need to get past that. So that museum also, is, it's not a museum, it's a cultural center. And they also do a lot of walking tours of the neighborhood where you can learn history. And I've done some of that um, over the years. So it's a great spot. Let, we mentioned earlier the Kubota. So please talk a little bit about number 58, Kubota. What, what is it? What's there? And what can you see? This is another place where a lot of people, um, you just, when you live in a place, you assume that everybody knows everything, but I've, uh, a lot of my friends and people I've talked to don't know about this, or like you said, have heard about it, but never went there. So it's in the Rainier Beach neighborhood and in a Japanese immigrant who came to the United States in around 1907, uh, Fujitaro Kubota um, was a, like a self-taught uh, gardener and horticulturist horticulturalist. And if you go around town, there are some gardens that he created for other people, but on land that he bought and transformed, he took it from like a, a swampy, stumpy piece of land. Um, and he, tr he transformed it over many years into a uh, display area that mixed uh, traditional Japanese gardens with Northwest plantings. And it's multi acres. And you go there now, um, he he was sent to one of the camps during World War II. And um, he, at that time, Japanese immigrants were not allowed to own land. It was under someone else's name. He got the land back after the war, had to rebuild it, replant it. Um, and then later on, the city took it over as a historic landmark. So you can go there now. It's free and you can walk the property. It's just so beautiful. I've gone there, again, since writing this book multiple times because during the pandemic, it was a nice open 
outdoor space to go to. And I just went there like a week ago with, with friends from out of town and I found new corners of the gardens that I hadn't seen yet. So it's just, it's just a wonderful treasure um, for the community. It is. And we're going to put that on our list. If you're going to offer, we're going to take you up on it. Harry, you okay. and your husband, and it will make it a foursome and a double date as it were, <laughs> and go to see these places. I was remiss and I definitely need to get there. Now I have a curious thing to ask you about. When I first moved, and this was in the pre-Suzanne era, there I moved to Washington in 1989, centennial year, 1989. And I remember asking a community college teacher, because I was just checking out places to go, you know, with the idea of lifelong learning and whatnot there. And I said, man, you know, it's interesting to me that uh, I moved here from Las Vegas, where there's been an influx, which would continue, of Hispanic people. There, I don't see many around here. And he just chuckled and said, oh, I don't think you'd see too many Hispanic people north of Yakima. <laughs> and I said, that's interesting that that would be the case with the agricultural sector. Yes, I get it. But that's only one aspect there. And today, that's not true. It wasn't true uh, during the years that I lived there. Many, many Hispanics would come in and they added their own flavor to that ethnic cauldron of Seattle Tacoma. Are there particular places today where the Hispanic influence, the cultural contributions, the ongoing contributions are celebrated? Could you think of one or two where you can just go there? Well, I know that um, an interesting at, at Seattle Center, um, almost every weekend there's a cultural festival at the Seattle Center, and several of them celebrate um, Hispanic culture, different parts of say, it's, it's Hispanic culture. So it's a great place to go to just get a, 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 a weekend infusion and, and taste the foods. But there's neighborhoods that have um, that have lots of restaurants and things like that. I mean, Seattle is much more multicultural than a lot of people think or imagine. Yeah. That's what truer words were never spoken. I remember being there in my early years in Seattle. And I mean, everything was Yashir Yabetcha and Ufta by people who were not Scandinavian. The idea was you said that because, well, you know, we're just white as a sheet here and we come from Sweden and the fjords and whatnot. And Washington looks a lot like Scandinavia, if not Switzerland there. I just find it over time that mosaic just becomes more and more complex. And it is something to be celebrated, though people many times wonder what happened to the Seattle they knew 30, 40, 50 years ago. You used to have a lot of houseboats there and they become very expensive and you sell them, you make a lot of money, but then where are you going to move? Because real estate is so high and it's a trade-off. It's a part of just this it's an evolution and sometimes feels like a revolution in the Seattle area, but it's always seemingly becoming more of itself, if that makes any sense. Like, like any city, it changes and grows and people come and go. I mean, you mentioned the Scandinavian um, immigrants, Scandinavian immigrants, they just got here earlier than other people. Um, but in again, in Ballard, in my neighborhood, the National Nordic Museum, it used to be called the... Um, the, the Nordic Heritage Museum. And now it's now it's a little more fancy, a little more arty, but it still celebrates that um, that part of the community. Um, but yeah, it's just um, there's just so many different cultural cultures here. Um, and you just have to I mean, that's why books like this are kind of good, because it gets you into different corners of different neighborhoods. And kind of that's the goal. I want to talk about the rubber chicken culture. 
<laughs> Chocolate. We, and then Gary there's and just I, the weird culture. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Gary and I have watched Sven Gulli. And when our TV announces what what it's coming on, he says Sven That's what the Comcast people say. Sven Svengooli has rubber chickens that they throw at him every week. And I laughed out loud when I saw number 77, the Rubber Chicken Museum, Archie McPhee. They talk about Archie McPhee on Sven Gooley every week. What? Is this the only rubber chicken museum? I think it is the only rubber chicken museum. And Archie McPhee is probably the only place that it could be. So Archie McPhee is a world-renowned chuckle place, I would call it. Um, so it's a it's a store that you go in and you don't think you need any of those things. You don't think you need like um, underwear for your squirrel, but you probably do. Um, it's just got so many little fun things all over the place. Um, we go there and we think we'll just stop in and we come out with like a bag of $50 worth of stuff of things we didn't know we needed just um so it's just one of those kind of i would call it a joke store i would just call it a fun oddity store um and one of the things they developed in the back of the store um is a rubber chicken museum and it is kind of funny but it is the the history of the rubber chicken which is a standard in in comedy you see it a lot of places you've seen it over time so the, some of the things there are um historic um, rubber chickens, and then they tell you the story of the rubber chicken. So they've got teeny tiny rubber chickens that you have to look through a microscope to see them. And then they have what is probably the world's tallest uh, rubber chicken, seven feet tall. Um, so there's no admission and it is set up as a, a museum at the back of the store. It's really wonderful and a, a great place to get pictures taken. I'm glad that museum exists. I don't think you need more than one. It's good that that place actually exists. Squirrels with underwear. I'll tell you something about squirrels. We get them all around here in our backyard. We're in a a, a colony, a colony of 12 different households in our HOA, our villas, which is a single level condo, by the way. And we have squirrels around. They'll take food if you throw it out at them, but they're not that approachable. There's a big difference between squirrels in Sarasota, and I hope you're taking notes, folks. Sarasota squirrels are not Seattle squirrels. How many people have fed squirrels by hand? I know I have many, many times. They'll get to where they'll take the food out of your hand or uh, out of your fingers, taking one paw to push you away, like don't get any ideas, but they will take it from you and even scratch at your front door because they want their daily fix. And that's one of the great things about Seattle, too, is that there's just there is a kind of marriage of industry and nature there. And it's done very consciously, perhaps even self-consciously at times, so that nobody or no thing gets left out. Yes, there's um, one thing I learned more about while writing this book was that the Olmsted um, company um, was hired to develop and plot out many of the green spaces in the city. Um, And there's one, um, again, I didn't know about this before the pandemic, and we happened upon it while we were doing, you know, bonus walks, but there's a place called Dunn Gardens, which is a little north of the city, um, and it's, or in a north neighborhood of the city, and it was a private garden designed by the Olmsted Brothers Company, Um, and it was, at that time, in the uh, early 1900s, it was like out of the city, it was the country house for a family that lived on Capitol Hill, and they would go there in the summer, and it is now one of the only, um, it's a 
nonprofit. So it's, but it's a private garden that's open to the public. And it's just, it took us four times to find it because it's tucked into a little neighborhood. So there's this little, um, again, a gem of a garden in a neighborhood that um, a lot of people don't know about. And I hope people go find it with, with the book. But yeah. With the book, the book is 100 and 11, 111 places in Seattle that you must not miss. Harriet Baskus is the author of that, photographs by Courtney Kelly, and so many fun things. We've talked about less than 10% of what is in the book, and I think we should do this again and, and talk about another group, because this is a lot of fun for people to come to Seattle, either who live in Seattle or are visiting, and and look at some different and interesting places they, they wouldn't have even found. Yes, and just um, one extra thing, um, every each of the 111 places has a bonus tip. So it's really 222 places um, that you must not miss. Now, what's what's the bonus tip about? So Is every that- place at the bottom of every chapter, it's like, well, if you like this, you'll probably like this, a very short tip or someplace that's nearby that if you're over here, you might as well go see this. Ah, okay. Okay. So it's all connected. And I love the yeah. format. It's a great concept. I can see why there would be so many places heralded with 111 places you can go and visit. You shouldn't miss it. You know, and if you live there and haven't seen it yet, will you have the best chance of all? It still amazes exactly. me that people can live somewhere as I did in Seattle and have done here in Sarasota for years and years and not get to places that are right there for crying out loud. I'm too busy chasing squirrels around the backyard going, yes. put on a pair of pants, will you? <laughs> I already have a list going for the next edition, so I'm ready. Beautiful. Excellent. And we can't Excellent. wait to talk about it. As before, we would appreciate an early booking for an interview. Harriet, you're very good that way. We thank you. Thank, thank you. This is fun. We're always delighted to have you with us, and especially so on Manson Mitchell, because it gives us the full hour to talk about these places in more detail. And still, we've only scratched the surface. Only scratched the surface. Thank you for being with us today, Harriet. Come see us again. Look forward to the next time. And thank you, Nathan Miller, for uh, riding herd over our show the last three weeks. And today, we appreciate you as well, Nathan. Uh, thank you. I just felt like I was in the backseat of the car the whole time, just gazing out and looking at the sights. I love it. Have a great weekend. And thanks again to Matt Shea. He was really a buddy stepping up, as did Dina Marie on Fridays. Thanks so much, everybody. Catch us next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>